Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are going to be talking about the 2017 film Downsizing. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Thanks. Um, so this was a movie that um, you had talked about um, wanting to do because this is one that had um, not just mixed reviews, but it seemed like there were people who like it, it wasn't didn't do great at the box office. A lot of people really didn't like this movie. It was sort of looked at as a failure, but then there were certain voices who uh, who did like it. And so it was really interesting to read some of the uh, the critical stuff with this. Uh, before we get into that, though, I'm sort of curious, what is your history with Alexander Payne as a filmmaker? So he's the one of the writers, the director of this film. yeah, I, I have I have kind of an up and down relationship with Payne. I've seen um, he, this is the seventh film that he's done, and I've seen his second film, Election, uh, which I think is a really is a really good film. And some people I've read think that actually remains his best. Um, I saw Sideways, uh, hated it, um, and saw The Descendants, uh, which is sort of okay. Um, so I've seen about half of his uh, of his work. Yeah, and I would say he's somebody who I have. I mean, like I'm obviously aware of. But um, I mean, I've I've seen Election. I saw. I think I saw Election and Sideways were the two that I've seen. So I haven't seen Nebraska. I haven't seen um, anything else uh, besides this. So, and I don't really have a real. I, I didn't come into this with the real strength, uh, strong sense of what an Alexander Payne film was. So I, I will definitely say that. Um, do you remember seeing trailers for this film? Yes. Okay. Um, because yeah. I think I think a lot of the, and I want to hear about your sense of this. Because I think a lot of this film, especially as I've been as I was reading reviews, and I think even just sort of audience stuff, a lot of this is about what expectations were versus what it was. So when you saw the trailers for this film, what did you think? Yeah, I thought it was going to be kind of a a lighthearted, maybe slightly satirical comedy. Uh, but I think the trailers really, as I recall, really gave you a very strong sense of the first half of the film. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, I was just thinking about that. This, just thinking about that, Sam. There's one of this is, happens often in trailers. There's an image in the trailer which is not in the film. Uh, it's an image of it's a, a bacchanalia around a big bottle of uh, of liquor that people have come upon, and it made much of the difference between the size of the bottle and the people. So I just thought it was going to be kind of a kind of a romp in a way. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I what I thought too. As I was, um, as I remember, I I'm, I don't remember what movie it was, but I remember being in a theater and seeing um, seeing a trailer for this, and I had a in my head a very clear sense of what this was going to be like. And what's interesting is that often happens with movies where you think it's going to be one thing and it's not. But what's interesting is for like you said, probably the first hour of this movie, it feels like it is that movie. It feels like oh, this is exactly what I thought it was going to be. And then it starts to turn probably twice at least, I think, um, mm -hmm. uh, into, into different things. So you talked about this story at the very end of our last episode, how um, this was a movie who uh, a few people who you respect really <laughs> liked. And that's sort of what drew you to it. So I presume you didn't see this in the theaters or did you? That's right. I did not see it in the theater. Yeah. And okay. then, uh, right. And then I turned to it on video after I got those recommendations. So who were those, who were those voices uh, and what were the things that they were saying to you about this? Well, my son is one of those voices. Um, he's, uh, he's one of the best film um, viewers that I, that I know. He's very discerning. I don't always agree with his taste, 
but um, he he has a way of uh, he, I, I would call him often a very generous watcher, um, and he, so he has a way of finding virtues or that other people may not notice in films. Um, one of the things that one of the things I like about the approach I think that he takes to thinking about films, and I try to do this as well, is to it's to, to base a critique on what the filmmaker tried to accomplish, not what you wanted the, the filmmaker to do. And that's mm-hmm. the thing that sometimes irritates me about certain negative reviews because um, sometimes they say, here's what the film should have done or here's where it should have gone. So Matthew is very good at kind of seeing what a film is trying to do, what a work of art is trying to do, and see whether or not it's successful on its own terms. I think uh, so that's a really I think that's a really smart observation though, because I because this seems to be a uh victim of i wanted x and that's not what it was yeah so for example a couple of reviews make um uh disparaging comparisons to something like swift's gulliver's travels right and because in gulliver's travels uh you have um gulliver and lilliputia you know he's little they're big and swift makes a lot out of that and one of the reviewers pointed out that once you're in leisure land you kind of forget you're in the world of the small Mm-hmm. And sees that as a little as something that Payne is somehow fumbled, but in my reading of the film, Payne's point is big or small, people are the same. I so, actually love, yeah. yeah. So as a actually- fundamental examination of what it means to be a human, it doesn't matter if you're five inches or six feet tall; you're going to behave like a human being. Um, I yeah, yeah, I loved that part of of the, the the way the story was constructed because this sort of it. It felt like it was going to be a grown-up Honey, I Shrunk the Kids where we were going to get lots of scenes of like big people and small people. And and even before he gets downsized, right, you get this in the bar, the guy talking about, you know, how much of a vote you should have. And then you're like, oh, this is what this movie's going to be. Yeah. And then it's like, actually, once, yeah, once they get there, there's and there's just enough moments where you see something that gives you the scale back that it reminds you, oh, yeah, yeah. this was about people getting small. Because you're right. So that I think that I, that's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, you know, so I, I think what Payne is doing deliberately is saying, okay, I could have gone this direction. I could have gone big people versus small people. So there's that thing in the bar, and then there's the when he's having dinner with his girlfriend, and she's talking about all the the, the, the way the big people are are you know. So you've got the world divided into big people and small people. But he's not. That's not what the film is interested in. And again, he looks he looks at the possibility of uh, the political uses of downsizing. And you do get that with obviously a central character in the film. But again, he's not interested in exploring that primarily. He's interested in exploring the issue that we looked at last week through a very different lens in First Reformed. He's interested in the environmental crisis. Um, so in addition to my to my um, son, I have to give a shout out to uh, my colleague uh, in at Bethel, Marion Larson. Uh, Marion and I have talked about films for years. And I think our tastes are often pretty similar, which means that she agrees with me often, which is as it should be. Um, so it was Marion who said to me, maybe I had said something to her about Matthew or encouraged me to watch the film. And Marion said, oh yeah, I really think it's an interesting film. So those those, those two people, and then my favorite go-to professional critic, A.O. Scott, um, he didn't love it, but he appreciated it and, and, and had that great line that it's like an episode of Twilight Zone directed by Crescent Sturgis. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about how I relate this film to Sullivan's travels as well. Yeah. And, and that maybe that's the, that's the next thing I had on my list was that quote. So maybe we, you can, we can unpack that a little bit. Um, because I was, as I was watching it, I, my updated reference for twilight zone, which I thought twilight zone, but I also thought black mirror, like this feels yeah. like, like a black mirror setup. 
Um, and it it actually would work as a Black Mirror episode because every once in a while there are these sort of glimmers of hope in Black Mirror as well. <laughs> um, and and especially as that series got moved to Netflix and they had different filmmakers making episodes, there are some that have a, a very different tone to them. So yeah. this is not uh, not out of place with that, although it has uh, it maybe doesn't go down the dark paths you sometimes uh, expect it to. Uh, but, but can you talk about that A.L. Scott quote and, and what that makes you think of? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I guess, you know, my, my, my initial thought was um, I, I thought immediately of, um, of Sullivan's Travels because of the way this film, as you've already observed, kind of um, switches in the middle uh, and then kind of switches again. Um, or gets darker. And I thought about Sullivan's Travels, obviously, is a film that kind of has two parts and starts out as a slapstick comedy or screwball comedy and becomes something much more serious. And I see the films as being in kind of inverse relationship to each other. And then I think that they're both about an individual having, in a sense, a crisis of identity, a uh, midlife crisis, a crisis of meaning. You know, what, what difference does my life make? So in a way, uh, the realization of the crisis that Sullivan has is, is quite modest. It's really just around his vocation, should he be a film director. Uh, and Paul's is, in a sense, much more significant. Uh, we're faced this global crisis. Um, what, what's my part? But then ironically, I think you could say that um, Sullivan's resolution has a larger impact because he's going to continue making films that hopefully millions of people will laugh at. And Paul's is much more modest because uh, the last image of the film is, is him uh, bringing a meal to Senor Cardenas. Mm -hmm. so, it's, so it's interesting to me that the scope of the crisis is, is in each case is inversely related to the scope of the solution. Right. Uh, and that in fact is one of the ways in which the film has been, was most strongly criticized, right? That the film is, it's just ultimately about um, the, the, the liberal white guy uh, guilt-stricken, trying to do what he can save the world by being the great white savior to the poor underclass. I mean, that, that's really kind of the, the basis of those people who really dislike where the film goes because they feel sure. like it ends up retreading that idea. Right. Uh, but what's it, what I find interesting is there's another, at the end of this film, uh, or I should say, right but, but, but while he's having to make that choice of basically going into the Noah's Ark vault or <laughs> or not, like that's actually a really interesting choice about kind of in what way are you going to try to save the world? You know, because going mm -hmm. into the vault is, is a way to try to save the existence of humanity on like a, 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 a broad but non-specific scale. <laughs> Right. Where 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 bringing a meal to that guy is like that sure means a lot to that guy, right? In that right. moment, you know, right. and he he doesn't care necessarily whether you know two thousand years from now humanity is going to repopulate the earth. Like that's not his concern at that moment. His concern is what am I going to eat today? Right. And, and and the other thing to keep in mind, of course, is um, he actually he has even though. Um, it may be too little too late. He has taken a step in being downsized. So it's not as though bringing a meal to Senior Cardenas and doing something for the environment are mutually exclusive options. Mm -hmm. uh, you, can, you can do both. But I also think in terms of the structure of the plot, uh, Sam, I think the other reason the other reason why he has to come back, it's just not only for Senior Cardenas, but it's also um, it's also because his action at the end has to reverse Audrey's action at the beginning. Um, in that she 
abandons him, whereas he comes back because he wants to affirm his connection and his, his even his love. Sure. And, and what's interesting, too, is that you could argue, okay, well, the, what he's doing at that small scale doesn't matter. But it reminds me of the first time uh, when he leaves Leisureland and they go through that tunnel, right? And then they're in the, mm-hmm. I don't even know what we would call that, the place where they are. Um, well, it's a ghetto, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but he goes to uh, uh, Knockland's apartment, right? And there's the mm-hmm. woman who's dying. Yeah. And she keeps saying, well, he's a doctor. He's like, I'm not a doctor. I can't help her. And uh, Knockland makes such a great observation. It's like, basically, she's going to die anyhow. Like, make her feel better. <laughs> right? Like, like, and it's just, and, and there is part of this sense of like, you can't solve her. You alone can't solve her exist literal existential crisis about her own ex- continuing to exist but you can at least like what you do can impact how she feels right now in terms of giving her particular drugs or things like that to make right. her feel better um but it also is is giving her this sense that there is you know maybe that there is a little bit of control in this world that feels out of control yeah exactly um I'm going to ask you a very like uh, English professor question. So I'm, I'm teeing you up here because I, I want to talk about a word that uh, is in a lot of the reviews, positive or negative, a word you've already used. And that's the word satire. Mm-hmm. So uh, can you give us like a good, a good uh, English major definition of satire and then maybe think about how does that, how does this film function as a satire? Does it function as a satire? Does it function well as a satire? Well, yes. I mean, satire is, uh, you know, it's both a literary genre and a method, right, of um, critiquing um, reality, critiquing uh, in some ways, uh, criticizing uh, reality through a variety of techniques which can involve uh, humor, exaggeration, um, kind of uh, setting up ridiculous uh, situations in order to point out some absurdity in human nature or some absurdity in society. But also, um, most sat- most people would say that satire that does that in some ways points to an alternative vision of how things could or should be different. So yeah, I've already mentioned one of the uh, one of the classic satires of Gull- Gulliver's Travels in which um, Jonathan Swift both makes Gulliver very small and very large uh, in order to critique elements, uh, aspects of, hum- of human nature. So, so uh, in what it, ways does this it, film work as a satire then? Um, yeah, it's it, to a modest degree. I mean, I, I, I think you could call it, you could say, yes, it's a, it's a satire of a certain kind of, um, materialism, consumerism. Uh, and, and, and hedonism. So the people, so leisure land, for example, which, uh, does not really serve any particularly noble purpose. At least that doesn't seem to be the motivation of people who go there. So yeah, I think that pain is satirizing the human tendency to take a particular technological advance, which is supposed to achieve a particular goal for noble purposes and show how human beings will nonetheless turn it to their advantage in order to serve their short-term rather than their long-term interests. So that's definitely a satirical observation. Right. And it's interesting actually, because we see downsizing pitched a few times, like we see it pitched at the scientific um, conference, right? And they, the guy brings out the bag of garbage and he's like, this is how much waste these people have produced in four years. So like, like, like we're seeing it that way. And then when you see 
Uh, I forget the Jason Sudeikis character. I forget his name, but like he's like Matt Damon's first like, oh, this is like a good thing for the environment. It's like, yeah, yeah, that doesn't matter. Here's what matters is how far does your money go and look at the life you can live you can live here. Um, so the, it's also this idea, I think, of um, the way we try to market being good to the world in ways that ends up being, we're really marketing just a different kind of materialism. Here, this way you can be materialistic or hedonistic and still you can make the case that you are doing this or that so like you can you can take a uh a product like like a prius let's say and say okay well that that's better but then that becomes this sort of status thing and it becomes it's not important about what it's doing it's important about like well look at what look at what i'm doing or or it becomes a different type of luxury or status thing Right. See, I think you can kind of do cake and eat it too. And and, and actually, you, you you see that strategy taken um, at a larger in a larger scale as well, Sam. You know, often uh, manufacturers will be told, "Well, not only is this environmentally sound to do it this way, but you actually can make you actually can make a better profit this way." Um, I, I I subscribe to a a shade grown coffee uh, service that. Uh, uh, is for people who grow coffee that uh, encourage environment environmental um, uh, concessions for birds. Uh, so their their yield is smaller, but their profit is greater because mm-hmm. they get paid more. So mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that's and I think that's exactly the thing that pain is now. That is being I think being being satirized. Yeah. There, there's also the economic you know the a character like Dushan with his uh, black market economy. I mean, he's a perfect example of of a satirical. Um, uh, role, but he he makes a comment that's really dead on, where he says about being downsized. He says you're immediately rich, unless you are poor, then you're just <laughs> right. small. <laughs> I think, and to me, again, that's what pain is getting at. That no matter what world you re- you create or recreate, human beings will always the the same inequities will always persist. Um, the same foibles will always always occur. Right. So before we get off the the, the topic of satire, uh, does satire necessarily need to be funny or is it just often in a comedic package? Yeah, I, I think it doesn't have to be funny, but I think it's got, um, you know, you, you have satire, which is also sometimes called black comedy. So mm-hmm. um, whether or not that actually involves actual humor or laughs, uh, there, there, it, it, it does involve enough of a distance. So sure. I think that you know, rather than feeling kind of emotionally uh, wounded by the criticism, you do you you wince, and sometimes that involves a little bit of a little bit. And of I guess po- pointing out the absurdity of 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 things often lends itself to a kind of what kind of rueful yeah. laughter. Yeah. Right. 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 Can you think of exa- uh, what are the most um, effective examples of satire in film that you can think of? Um, of course, what would immediately come to mind for me would be Dr. Strangelove. Um, I think that that's a film to me that kind of embodies what you can do with satire slash dark comedy. That's, that's probably the finest example, uh, because it's a relentless, it's a relentless critique that actually it's going to violate one of the rules I said earlier about good satire. It doesn't really have an alternative vision. Uh, it just shows how awful we are. Right, right. Uh, another word that comes up uh, in a lot of the reviews, um, and is, I mean, there's lots of uh, it, lots of books, especially kind of YA fiction books and movies, uh, is this idea of dystopia, right? That that yeah. Leisureland is 
pitched as this perfect community and ev- like i mean to go to the the, the duchamp phrase like everybody's rich right except we obviously even from the very beginning notice like what this is a society like like there has to be people who are providing these services not everyone here can be retired right right, right. And, and then and then obviously you get to you see that play out um so when you think about when you think about dystopias because the the literary and filmic world are full of dystopias uh, what makes an effective dystopia story to you oh well and I, is I, this one yeah i I, th- I think effective dystopia has to be plausible enough that you can you can actually imagine this coming about because obviously dystopia is the antonym to, to utopia so you have to see this as a possible future so i think this a couple of the dystopian visions of the 20th century that I think have remained most powerful is because we've seen elements of them come come to come to fruition. So I think both Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, uh, which is actually now a limited series, evidently on one of the cable channels, uh, and um, Orwell's 1984 are examples of dystopias that actually are quite uh, plausible. Um, Brave New World relies a lot on, um, on drugs, uh, and 1984 relies a lot on technology. Uh, and in some senses, both of those visions of the future have have come to have come to pass. Well, it's so interesting. You have to see this as a possible, plausible future. Yeah, it's interesting because I thought of I thought of Brave New World, um, which I think is there's things I don't love about that novel, but I think it's the best dystopia I've I've seen. And and Leisureland has a, a bit of this, at least for a while, is when you. Is it you can you can see how we could get there too, and you can see why it would be attractive, and you're almost thinking like, well, like why would you not want to just? I mean, in in Brave New World, like it's basically sex and drugs, right? Like if you're yeah. if you're further down on the list, like you maybe don't have everything, but you're constantly fed with these like physical desire, physical desires filled, mm-hmm. these appetites filled, you know. Um, and I think that. The, the dystopias that I always struggle with are the ones where I'm like, why would anyone have ever wanted this? Like, like how did, how could you have got, I mean, you'd have to be tricked to get here where I feel like the, the Aldous Huxley one is like, well, that actually makes perfect sense. Why people would be like, yes, because that's actually how addictions work is you're mm-hmm. like, I am feeding this thing, which is giving me pleasure. And then all of a sudden I realize I'm in the prison of this thing that gives me this one kind of pleasure. And I have sold out all of these other things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, does this work as a dystopia, do you think? Yeah, I think it does. Um, I mean, obviously the technology strains credulity a bit and uh, you have to buy that. Yeah. It it raises a number of issues. Um, uh, you know, do do small people necessarily reproduce small people? Uh, (laughs) There's a whole other film to be had there, the giant baby that destroyed Leisure Land. Um, But uh, no, I I, I think it works because, um, I mean, he's not asking you to believe that you really, really could shrink people, but it's not, it's not that far removed from stuff that we do. So Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, nanotechnology is on the rise, so to speak. So, and I loved, I loved the, the, the actual downsizing sequence. Yes, that's what a lot of people you know, really enjoyed. Yeah, and he gives you enough. He gives you enough stuff where it's like, yeah, you'd have to take out dental fillings and artificial limbs because those aren't, 
organic parts of you. And it's like, okay, yeah. so, so I mean, it, it, it doesn't explain how it works because it doesn't work, but there is enough stuff in there. And that's why even the story about the woman um, who dies of cancer and how her husband died, that they mm -hmm, yes. it was sort of a, a cheap downsizing and they forgot to take out a gold filling and his head exploded. <laughs> that's what so, happened before. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Um, so what for you, I mean, you talked about this as a film that that uh, is better than people sort of a lot of people talked about it, but it's also imperfect. So I'm going to ask you both what works and what doesn't work about this film. So maybe start with what do you feel like really works about this film? If you were going to try to convince somebody, you know what this you, you should go watch this. I, I, I think what works is one of the things that the critics think doesn't work. I, I, I think I think the way that the film makes a deliberate turn. Uh, and having set up this premise uses it to explore a real world problem um, and why it why it's no longer interested in big versus small that works for me um, and and as I said earlier Sam I think for the critics for whom it doesn't work sometimes I feel like that's because they wanted it to continue to be a film that Alexander Payne didn't want to make uh, and so I think that what some people see as the fundamental flaw in the film to me is, what actually makes the film uh, interesting. What are the things that don't work? Um, I have very mixed feelings um, uh, about the characterization of um, Nakhlan. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, of course, something that gained a lot of um, negative press. And she herself has defended that characterization. Um, that's her decision to adopt that accent. That's not her normal accent at all. She's actually uh, resettled from a Viet from Vietnam in Louisiana, so she has a little bit of a Southern drawl. Uh, and she herself thought the character was really interesting. Um, but critics, for some reason, have found the character kind of one-dimensional and stereotypical and a cause of, of cheap laughs. I, I'm not sure I exactly agree with that, but I can see how that's kind of problematic. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing that I'm sure I'm not sure works is I do struggle a bit with this notion that somehow um, the the love of an exotic woman uh, redeems the white man who then is in kind of the white man savior role. I do think there's that element in in, in the film of that kind of uh, kind of um, kind of a worn out trope. Um, but of course, I, I I have a rather generous view of that. I still think it works. I, I, but I think that's the part that's probably still is problematic. And for some people, that might loom pretty large. So if we think about this as a a, a movie in sort of two or two or three sort of tone tone shifts, right? You get the the sort of the setup is is has one feel to it, mm -hmm. um, and then then we get to we get outside of Leisureland. Um, and now that's still consistent with the first one, but it's just sort of flipping to the, that's the, the twilight zone like, or black mirror, like, Oh, here's the, the darker aspect of this. Right. Right. And then you get when they go to Norway, which mm -hmm. is like a totally different feel to me too. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, especially maybe the last part, the, the, the Norway part? Yeah. Cause, that, that... Cause to me, that's where I will say, like, as I was watching this and I watched it at the end of the day, um, it was interesting, but that's def that shift definitely felt like it dragged a little bit for me. Yeah, yeah, that's that. Yeah, that that's where again a lot of a lot of the critics felt the film. Yeah, kind of ground to all a halt, kind of uh, glacier slowness was the way one one person mm -hmm. put it. Um, yeah, I, I think it's longer than it should be. Um, there's a certain 
there's a certain logical and thematic reason for it. So I think in, I think having it there is not inappropriate, but I think it, it could be it could be shorter. Um, I think it's dramatically necessary, but but too drawn out. I'm going to ask you a question that I don't think I've I've asked about any movie, but I mean, if you could change something about this movie that you think would make it more uh make a wider audience of people sort of see what pain is trying to say or trying to do here uh what would you change about it i that's a good question and um i don't think that what i just said a minute ago would help i don't think making the movie any shorter would help um I don't think you can do anything. I, I think that the premise of the movie is one that some people um, just might not buy. Um, okay. Yeah. I, 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 I think the notion, I mean, the only, the, the only thing you, you could change, Sam, but it, it would change the nature of the film is, is you could do a little more, a little more darkness at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and he, but I do think he does a little bit. Of, I think he does enough darkness. I think you can see that, you know, Paul doesn't have a great life. I think you can see that his wife has reservations about what they're about to do. So I think there's ways in which he signals that something darker is coming. So, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I think I think as as a um anybody who's used to reading books or watching movies knows that there's kind of like when we we're talking about with once you're like things are set up like you know okay it's what's the thing that's going to go wrong like like you you know that there is this darker part coming and even as you're just thinking about Leisureland, in my head i kept thinking i even thought about the the guy in the bar who was talking about you know yeah. rights and votes and i was thinking man i wonder with something like Leisureland, like how much do they depend on the people who don't get small right because like you that can't exist on its own Right, it doesn't seem self-sustaining. So, like, they're dependent on on the people who didn't do this, and um, but then also, how dependent are the people who who stay big on the fact that you do need for the if you buy into the fact that the world is melting, you do need we do need to reverse this, and this is a way to maybe start to do that. And um, yeah, I, I, to get back to your previous question, Sam, I want to say one more thing about that, and that is that. That's how movies are destroyed. Um, one of my one of my favorite cinematic figures is is Orson Welles, and 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 almost every film that Welles made um, for a studio after Citizen Kane was was ruined by other hands, and and it's it's a good example of what happens when somebody sees what a filmmaker has made and says, oh, you know, we've got to we've got to change this because this isn't going to work, and they end up creating um, a far in, inferior project uh, product. So. Um, I, th I think there are certain things that you just can't, you just can't change without destroying. So. Mm -hmm. Is this a film that you think, uh, you could imagine? Cause we've, we have talked about some films that didn't land well in their time, but in, you know, if you, if we project out 25 years from now and think about, you know, what's happening with the world, what's happening with the environment, is this something that, that might have more poignancy or might, might, do you think might land differently to people yeah, in it's possible yeah. i i i don't I, I don't think anybody could 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 take a um a less favorable view of the film as it goes along and it's possible yeah. it could be more favorable Absolutely. uh what else anything else you want to talk about in terms of uh in terms of downsizing yeah i want i want to talk about a really uh to me a really good foreshadowing scene uh and that is um when they're at the reunion party 
uh, when uh, when Paul and Audrey first see their friends, Dave and his wife, who have been downsized. Um, it's one of those short, quick moments in the film that's so significant. Paul is sitting at the table, just kind of by himself, uh, and he looks up at the uh, at the at the wall, and he sees two posters. And one poster says on it, "The door to happiness opens outward." And it's interesting to me that that gets echoed when he goes into Leisureland, and there's a little uh, there's a, something on the floor that says, "Start the path to happiness." But that door to, ha to happiness opens outward. That's that foreshadows that awakening on, on his part. And then the other poster says, uh, enter the darkness to find the light. Hmm. And that's exactly what happens as he goes through that tunnel. Mm -hmm. uh, it gets dark and, and then it gets, gets light again, which also, of course, is a traditional image of, uh, of returning from death, you know, going, uh, re being reborn. Uh, so I think that. To me, that the posters foreshadowing that and those and those images are are pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. Well, it also I think presents this image of like uh, you know if you think about uh, I read some people talk about you know the 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 move to downsizing in this movie you know can also be representative of like the sort of fleeing to the suburbs and and you know abandoning cities and things like this abandoning urban areas and things like this the sort of you know white flight kind of thing too and there is this sense that when you go through that tunnel i can't help but think um like oh is like like the world out there is going to be scary right and mm -hmm. and actually he he encounters this world that is is you know as in lots of ways, more communal, you know, more, I mean, it's interesting, you know, like there's that one big TV screen and the people kind of all come yeah. together and, you know, and it's not everyone in their own, in their own mansions, right. There really is this sort of sense that, you know, maybe there is another way of life, even, uh, even when you're even in the small, you know, and it makes me think of being, uh, you know, I didn't grow up in the suburbs. I grew up past, I grew up in, you know, uh, past the suburbs, but definitely in, you know, it's in a small town and, it reminded me of that, you know, I will say I grew up in the the 80s, early 90s and like going to Minneapolis or St. Paul always felt a little scary to me. You know, mm -hmm. I've been conditioned to be afraid of of things. And then, then you sort of start to go to those places and realize, well, these are just places and these are just people, you know, and it's it's a but but there but there is that that sort of this this sense of of um of sort of needing to leave those protective things. Mm -hmm, exactly. Uh, so as you look at next week, what do you uh, what do you have for us? Well, I've been thinking about the fact that um, the much anticipated Christopher Nolan film Tenet keeps getting getting <laughs> delayed. Um, and you know, we've uh, I've mentioned Nolan as one of my favorite directors. Um, so I think it's time to revisit what I still think of as Nolan's best film. It still remains my favorite Nolan film, which is his second movie, uh, Memento. Um, I love Memento. And um, for what it's worth, not that it's worth a heck of a lot, but uh, uh, Rotten Tomatoes recently did a ranking of all of uh, his films since following. They did not include following, but they did the Rotten Tomatoes ranking for all of his films, Memento onward, uh, according to the tomato meter reading, which, of course, is uh, precise science, as we know. Um, <laughs> and Memento ended up number two by 1% behind um, one of the Dark Knight films. I can't remember which one, but anyway. But to me, it's, I mean, I think all of, I mean, I think, I think all of Nolan's films are, um, are well worth watching, but I just, Memento is the one that just 
has always stuck for me. Yes. And I will, I will explain what I mean by this on next week's episode, but <laughs> this is one of the movies that I point to when I, when I say, what do I most want to have happen when I go see a movie? Mm. Going to see Memento is, is, is like one of the, the like archetypal ex- examples of that experience. Like that is what I want. And I'll, I'll talk about what that is. Uh, next week, but this is this is one of my absolute favorites. So I'm. Excited. Well, I have a good story to tell about the first time I saw Memento, so that'll that'll work. <laughs> All right, fantastic. Well, Barrett, thank you so much. This was a really interesting episode, and I'm glad I watched Downsizing. You know, like like you said, it's a it's a it's an imperfect film, but it it's something that I probably would have never seen had I not had. Um, you say, hey, we should we should watch this, and it it's the kind of thing. I mean, I, I've talked about this on this show before, but. Uh, I know something is at least interesting if I can't get it out of my head. Like if I keep thinking about it and also I watched this Monday night and it stayed with me. It stayed like ideas from this have stayed with me. There's things that I've thought about coming out of this. Um, so uh, that to me makes it a worthwhile interaction with a piece of art. If it causes you to ask some questions and to keep thinking about things. So, uh, so I, I thoroughly, uh, thoroughly enjoyed that and thoroughly enjoyed uh, this conversation. So we are out of time, but we will see you next week uh, when we talk about Christopher Nolan's Memento in the video store.